Will the U.S. continue under Biden to push towards confrontation with China? As the Biden administration takes the reins, what will change about U.S. policy towards China and what will remain the same? We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to The Real Story on The Socialist Program. I'm Brian Becker, and I'm joined by Kenneth Hammond. He is a professor of East Asian and Global History at the New Mexico State University. He is an activist and organizer with a new peace movement called Pivot to Peace. Ken Hammond, welcome back. Morning, Brian. Always glad to be here. Ken, uh, first of all, we're going to talk about China, and we're going to do a number of shows with you. Right now, we're going to talk about the incoming Biden administration's orientation towards China, what its foreign policy is uh, expected to be, how it differs or how it remains the same with the the foreign policy towards China articulated by Donald Trump's Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo. We're going to talk about what's new, what's the same, but we also want to look at U.S.-China relations and in particular China's foreign policy orientation over multiple periods, several decades, different stages since 1949 when the Communist Party came to power uh, at the conclusion of a 27-year-long civil war where the Communist Party came to power and China became one of the socialist bloc countries. So we're going to cover a lot of territory, and but we want to start first with, you know, Mike Pompeo, Anthony Blinken, the new Secretary of State, what's the difference, what's the same? But before we do that, tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, You are a a scholar, you're an educator, you're in New Mexico, you're at the New Mexico State University, and you're formerly uh, a director of the Confucius Institute. Uh, Tell us a little bit about your own background with China. Sure. Well, I I have been uh, here at New Mexico State for 27 years, Um, came here right after I got out of grad school. And uh, prior to that, in the 1980s, I had been uh, living in China, living in Beijing. I I moved there in 1982, and I was there for about five years, um, working mostly with American students who were coming over at that time uh, to study Chinese language, but also working with American educational delegations going around China, helping them make local arrangements for site visits and things like that. Um, so I'm basically a historian, uh, you know, and, and my work has been a, a lot on, on looking at how we can learn from China's past to understand uh, the present and, and the developments taking place in China now. Um, I, as you mentioned, here at New Mexico State, one of the things that uh, that I worked very hard with was establishing our Confucius Institute. And those are programs that are run collaboratively between Chinese and American institutions of higher education 
to primarily to provide opportunities for language education. Uh, the, the idea being that it's a good thing for people on both sides of that relationship to understand each other's language and be able to uh, read and, and talk and, and see what's going on. Uh, certainly many, many Chinese learn English. You have to have a certain proficiency in English to go to university in China. Uh, sadly, in America, the study of foreign languages in general, and Chinese in particular, is much much uh, uh, less uh, embraced. And our Confucius Institute here uh, opened in 2007 and ran for uh, 12 years. But unfortunately, uh, a little over a year ago, it was closed down uh, as part of uh, a pattern that we've seen emerge across the United States. Confucius Institutes at many schools have been closed down as the, the hostility and the aggression on the part of the Trump administration in particular uh, focused on them, uh, you know, apparently coming to feel that it was bad for Americans to be able to actually understand anything uh, about China. Uh, so our institute closed about a year ago, and um, we're, you know, trying to maintain other programs that uh, that uh, allow us to send students to China. But uh, there's been such a reduction in support for that uh, that uh, that's that's made it a very difficult, uh, very difficult process. Um, I try to stay as in touch with China. I, of course, now in the COVID period, I haven't been there for a year, but um, I try to travel there on a regular basis and I have a lot of uh, friends uh, in China, in, in Beijing and Shanghai and other parts of the country. Um, so just, yeah, that, that's my general background. I, I've tried to stay as engaged as possible and up to date as possible. And, and again, just a little bit about your history. You have been a political activist. You're a progressive person. Uh, we just uh, had the 50th anniversary of the the massacre, the Kent State massacre, May 1970, uh, after the Nixon administration expanded the war in Southeast Asia past outside of Vietnam. Well, it, it already had, but we we started to learn of it that time. You were you were part of that struggle at Kent State. Yes, I went to uh, Kent State University. I grew up in Ohio and went to Kent State uh, for my undergraduate uh, studies, and I got involved. I was a member of Students for a Democratic Society and was very involved in the anti-war movement uh, and in in uh, the radical political movements for uh, racial justice and and uh, economic equality and things like that. Uh, yes, and so I was. I was at Kent State uh, May fourth, nineteen seventy, when uh, the National Guard uh, that had been called in because of protests and demonstrations against the invasion of Cambodia uh, at the at the rally at noon on that day on Monday, May fourth, uh, the National Guard fired into the crowd of, uh, of about two thousand students, uh, killing four, wounding nine. Uh, and then uh, subsequent to that, I was one of 25 people uh, that were indicted by a state grand jury. Uh, we used to say we got indicted for getting in the way of the bullets. Um, and that, uh, that was a case that uh, took us into both state and federal court over the next year and a half. Uh, ultimately, we were able to, uh, to beat those uh, unjust uh, charges. Uh, but it certainly uh, consumed a lot of time and energy on the part of uh, of our of our movement. Uh, and so, yeah, I've I've remained involved in uh, in uh, radical politics over the years since then, uh, working with uh, with different groups, uh, student movements, uh, working with students here at uh, at New Mexico State. 
Ken, we're, we're talking today, and we're going to continue to talk about U.S.-China relations. Now, in relations between, say, two people, you, 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 people frequently think, well, what does that person think of me? Um, and then you might ask the question, well, how, how, does the, how do my friends think about that person? But perhaps the most important question when you think about a relationship, when you're forming a relationship, when you're nurturing a relationship, when you're managing a relationship, is not only to think about what does the other person think about you, but what does the other person think about themselves? Uh, because that, in fact, informs one of the, a general outlook, not only towards other individuals, but towards the world, how does someone view themselves? And I think you know one of the the tragedies, so to speak, of this clampdown on China, the shutting down of the Confucius Institutes, the the stopping of people to people exchanges, it, it creates a blockade. It's not like simply the blockade of Cuba, where material things are blockaded, where people. In Cuba can't buy medicine or can't buy food or can't buy other things necessary to sustain life because the U.S. wants to destroy the Cuban revolution. There's a, there's a blockade of knowledge. There's a blockade of information. And as a consequence, people in the United States don't even ask the question, well, how does, how does China, for instance, view itself? All we have to know is that China is evil. That China, China is bad, that China is something to be feared, that China is a threat. But I want to start because I think it's so important to think about relationships, uh, and in this case, relationships between two large countries, the two biggest economies in the world. Uh, what does China think about itself? Because that is so important in terms of understanding China. Yeah, no, I think that uh, I, I, I think that that question of, of mutual perceptions and self perceptions is really is really central to to what's going on, and I think that that this this campaign it's it's kind of a campaign of willful ignorance uh, on on the part of, of the United States of trying to uh, to to control and constrain knowledge and information. Uh, about China, about the realities of life for people in China, um, you know what? Uh, when we when we think about what, how do the Chinese think of themselves? What do they think they're doing? What are they up to? Um, it's just such a different world from from what we see in the headlines and and in the media. Uh, you know, the Chinese people are are like people anywhere. They they want to have a good life. They want to have their kids get a decent education. They want to have a sense of of contributing to their society. They want to have uh, hope that uh, the future is going to be better and, and they're perhaps going to have a comfortable retirement. I mean, they're very mundane uh, concerns on the part of, of you know, 1.4 billion people, ordinary people. And the Chinese government, uh, you know, they're... The, the tradition in China, and this goes back even before the revolution and, and before socialism, but sort of their their general political culture is that that a good government 
is one that provides the conditions that allow people to to pursue their livelihoods, to to do those things, to have a good life. And that's I think that's pretty much what uh, what uh, the, the government in China, what the, the the Communist Party in China, that's what they're dedicated to. They're dedicated to building a society uh, that that. What they what they at this point called uh, in the initial stage of socialism they call it uh, a moderately prosperous society. They want to build a better life for the Chinese people, for the working people in China, and they're doing that through what they call uh, socialism with Chinese characteristics, trying to adapt the, uh, the the broad principles of socialism and make them work in the context of China. And that's uh, I think that that's in, in many ways they're really very very modest ambitions. Uh, you know, uh, America, the American ruling class, the American political and media elites, they project this image of China as as having these ambitions of global domination and and trying to run the world their way. And I just I just don't think that 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 fits at all with what the Chinese people feel about themselves and and really what they what they believe about their own government and what that government is doing for them. Can the um, the Chinese uh, or China was a leading economic uh, power in the world, a really perhaps the dominant economic power in the world for the longest time, far, far, far advanced over Europe, for instance. Uh, and then the Europeans arrived in in mass uh, and with cannon and gun and boats, uh, war boats, gunboats. Uh, and then began the what what the Chinese call the century of humiliation. Let's just talk about that and how important it is in terms of framing Chinese perceptions about China's place in the world and the aspirations. It's very noteworthy that when uh, Chairman Mao Zedong uh, took the podium in Tiananmen Square, October first, nineteen forty nine when they had become the new government after a 27-year-long armed struggle. Chiang Kai-shek and the nationalist forces had been defeated. They fled to Taiwan. There was, I don't know, millions of people perhaps in Tiananmen Square. So Chairman Mao uh, you know, comes to the podium victorious and proclaims what? He proclaims China has stood up. In other words, it's not a, a speech about communism per se. It's really a speech about China's China has has stood up. China is independent. China is free. Uh, the implication being that the century of humiliation is over. Just talk about what that was and what that how significant that is in terms of China's perceptions. Sure, that's a that's a really critical uh, phenomenon to understand. Uh, you know the what we call the century of humiliation, basically from the the eighteen forties to the nineteen forties, uh, and it's you know it's it's started it's begun by the the military defeat of imperial China of the Qing Dynasty by the British uh, and the, in in what's called the Opium War, and it's called the Opium War because it was fought. So that British drug dealers uh, and others, but primarily the British drug dealers who were growing opium in India, which they had taken over over the previous few decades, uh, and shipping it in vast quantities to China, 
uh, addicting millions of, of people, especially in southern China, draining money out of the Chinese economy, uh, causing uh, serious disruptions there. Uh, when China tried to restrict that trade, tried to control the import of drugs into its country, where they were illegal and where the harmful effects were well understood, the British uh, sent the Royal Navy over and they shelled ports up and down the South China coast uh, for three years until 1842, when the Qing dynasty was forced to sign the Treaty of Nanjing. And that treaty opened up ports that allowed the British to come and go and trade with whomever they wanted, uh, trade whatever they wanted. Uh, and, and that began, that really launches this century, century of humiliation. The Industrial Revolution, which had, had driven that whole process, meant that cheap European goods, British goods, flooded into China, disrupting and undermining the domestic industries, which had been among the most sophisticated in the world. Uh, and it caused tremendous hardship for, for literally hundreds of millions of people in China. And that went on. It got worse and worse uh, until the, the early 20th century, uh, when the imperial system was overthrown in 1911, 1912. Uh, China tried to establish a, a, a modern uh, republic, but uh, that, that faltered. Uh, the country broke up into warlord territories for a while. Uh, the Nationalist Party, uh, which at first under, under its founder, Sun Yat-sen, had been a, a pretty progressive force, had turned, for example, for assistance to the, uh, the Soviet Union and the Communist International for advice, and had formed an alliance with the newly emergent Communist Party in the early 1920s. But after Sun Yat-sen's death, when Chiang Kai-shek took over the, the Nationalist Party, it became a, a right-wing uh, sort of almost fascist movement within China. Uh, and the Communist Party then struggled for, as you say, for 20-plus for years from the late 1920s until 1949 to try to find a path to liberate China from imperialist exploitation and to set the stage for finally really moving past the old imperial legacy and creating a new free independent uh, uh, republic uh, the people's republic uh, and to start the long process of, uh, of trying to build a, a socialist modernity but that century of humiliation it looms large in in the consciousness of Chinese people uh, you know it's it's not an experience that uh, that Americans I think can can really appreciate or, or certainly one that they don't know much about. Uh, and given the, the kind of general uh, attitude of, of uh, historical amnesia that prevails in the United States, uh, you know, uh, things, that, things that happened that long in the past now, 70, 80 years in the past, even though it lasted for a century, it tends to be dismissed. There's almost a sort of attitude of, well, get over it. That's, that's done. That's past. But the century of humiliation, the scars that that left on Chinese civilization, Chinese culture, uh, are very much in the hearts and the minds of, of ordinary Chinese people. And, and what that fuels is, is a sense of, of joy, a sense of achievement, a sense of accomplishment, and a hope for the future, which has been built step by step over these last 70 years since liberation. And, and that's part of this, this, this hopeful attitude, this positive attitude that, that you feel when you're in China. Um, 
I travel to China every year uh, to give lectures for Americans who are who are doing tours there, and it's it's always a remarkable experience that that after a couple of days, we usually start in Beijing, and people, you know, you can go out and wander around the streets, go to restaurants, go to parks, whatever. Um, people will come to me and say. We don't understand what we're seeing. These people seem so happy. They seem so full of energy, and 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 the city is so clean, and 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 everybody looks healthy, and 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 they're well dressed. We thought that everyone was going to be miserable and oppressed because that's all we hear about in America, and 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 that's the contrast of those two perceptions. Uh, you know, the realities of life in China. And the, this sort of mythology, this this projection of of a, the evil empire kind of attitude towards China by by American politicians and media, uh, the contrast couldn't couldn't be starker. So it's it's a combination of of this sense of this memory, this 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 sort of uh, uh, legacy of the the century of humiliation, along with the pride and the and the sense of accomplishment in what China has been able to do uh, in in the decades since liberation. Ken, let's uh, thank you for that, by the way. And let's let's go now to the incoming Biden administration and the outgoing Trump slash Pompeo administration. Uh, we're going to come back to some of that history. We're in our other segments that we're going to do with you. I want to come back. There's a lot more to talk about in terms of this extraordinary history uh, with China and inside of China. I, I know I've I've talked to you before and listened to you before and read some of your writings earlier, where you know you make the case that China was, in fact, before the the european invasion where you know starting with the opium wars which ended up where hong kong becomes a british the the port of hong kong becomes a british colony and and you know even now here we are in 2020 that struggle is still so important in terms of us china relations we we want to go back and sort of get deeper into some of that history but but before we do that and we'll do that later i want to bring us to what what's happening right now. In his final act as Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo declared that the Chinese government is committing genocide and crimes against humanity. Uh, and of course, Pompeo is referring to China's policies towards ethnic Uyghurs and other Muslims, mainly in Western China. Uh, Pompeo obviously has presidential aspirations of his own. He has made pounding China, beating up China like a principal part of, especially of the last couple of years. Robert O'Brien, who was the uh, national security advisor for Trump, also published in a you know, long dissertation in Foreign Affairs magazine about how China is trying to take over the world and China is a great menace and China is the number one foe of America. And a lot of people associate with the, the, the Trump administration and these figures like Pompeo or Brian or Peter Navarro or the other China hawks with the Trump administration. But I want to play an audio clip. This is Mike Pompeo on his way out. And then we're going to hear from Anthony Blinken. He's the Secretary of State who replaces Pompeo who's not a Republican, who's not a religious zealot, as far as I know, uh, you know, 
Anthony Blinken was part of the Obama administration. Anyway, let's just listen first and get a sense of Mike Pompeo. Here he is. Look, your, your point about the threat from the Chinese Communist Party, I think, is right. Uh, President Trump rightly identified this when he started campaigning back in 2015 as the singular threat to the, the centrality of Western thought in the world, the idea that we're going to have a rules-based system uh, that respected property rights and human dignity. China is singular in the threat it poses to those things. And I do think there's a consensus there. Uh, I've worked with Democrats on many important issues, on issues in Hong Kong and issues I, I referred to the Uyghurs in Xinjiang and the uh, atrocities taking place there. Uh, All right, so it's a singular threat, Ken, a singular threat. China's a singular threat to everything Western, which means everything good. Okay, now let's listen to Anthony Blinken, uh, now Biden's Secretary of State, replacing Mike Pompeo. Uh, He's speaking with MSNBC's Andrea Mitchell just on Monday. Let's listen. In our future with China. There's no doubt that, that China poses the most significant challenge to us of any other country, but it's a complicated one. There are adversarial aspects to the relationship. There's certainly competitive ones, and there's still some cooperative ones too. But whether we're dealing with any of those aspects of the relationship, we have to be able to approach China from a position of strength, not weakness. And that strength, I think, comes from having strong alliances, something China does not have, actually engaging in the world and showing up in these international institutions, because when we pull back, China fills in, and then they're the ones writing the rules and setting the norms of these institutions, standing up for our values uh, when China's challenging them, including in Xinjiang against the Uyghurs or democracy in in Hong Kong, uh, making sure that our military is postured so that it can deter Chinese aggression. Okay, Ken, um, they, they don't sound that different. I mean, I guess Blinken is saying, look, in order to really screw China, we should strengthen our, our relationship with our allies so we can come at China all together as a united front. And so the criticism of Trump, the implied criticism, is that he downplayed the significance of having imperialist allies who could work as a united front. Uh, but that doesn't sound, I don't know, well, maybe in some ways China will be hopeful that, you know, Anthony Blinken's not Mike Pompeo and that, that Biden is not Trump. Uh, but anyway, when you hear the two, they sound pretty similar. There's a lot of uh, there's a lot of, uh, of, a, of a sort of echo chamber effect there. That's for sure. I think that that the Biden administration, I think that figures like uh, like Blinken and Campbell uh, are gonna are gonna articulate. Uh, they're gonna try to articulate a sense that uh, that uh, that they're taking a new approach. That they're really you know moving away from uh, from the harshness of uh, of the Trump era. But you know, it's important that we remember. That uh, the whole concept of of the pivot to Asia, uh, which is a, a a global redeployment of American military resources and and other kinds of power uh, uh, resources, uh, that began uh, under the uh, Obama administration. That began when Joe Biden was vice president. Uh, you know, the Trump administration obviously was a was a, a, a rather appalling period in in our modern history. Uh, Trump, uh, sort of as a rogue figure, uh, you know, this whole America First idea that was disruptive. That was certainly uh, something that uh, that that. Uh, 
went against America's general uh, effort to create as broad an alliance, as broad a, 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 a ranking of subordination, I suppose you'd say, to have other countries march in tune with America's interests. Uh, and that's what we're going to see under the Biden administration, is trying to get everybody back on one big bus. Uh, but that bus is, uh, is not one that's, that's, uh, that's trying to, to uh, seek out a better relationship with China. It's one that's trying to keep, uh, keep American dominance, American global hegemony in place. And, and I think really that's, that's the, the underlying basis for the, for the bipartisan quality of, of, of the fear and, and, and uh, aggression that's being promoted against China by American uh, politicians on both sides of the aisle in Congress and, and really across a broad ideological spectrum in, in the media. Uh, you know, everything, uh, the New York Times, of course, has a, a long history of being anti-China, figures like Nicholas Kristof, who, you know, has has not only uh, criticizes the Chinese system, but but has you know started launching all these ad hominem attacks on Xi Jinping. Uh, you know, there, there's there's just a, a liberals, conservatives, uh, neoliberals, uh, libertarians. There's just a, this this uh, sort of broad consensus uh, in in ruling circles. That uh, that China is is the problem is a singular problem is the biggest challenge however you want to articulate it I don't think there's a lot of uh, a lot of distinction between the attitudes uh, that uh, that the ruling class has in in both of its uh, in both of its uh, bourgeois parties. Yeah, um, I want to ask you um, because they're they're saying you know Blinken and and, and Pompeo are both saying. Look, China is a big threat to the West. They both are making a, a similar arg- a, a, a similar argument to each other, which is that that the United States made a big mistake by allowing China integrate to integrate into the world economy to join the World Trade Organization, and they expected, as they said, to China for China to change to 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 be sort of modified its conduct or its existence, its entity, its, you know, what it actually is as a social and economic entity, that that would be changed over time, that it would become like, quote, like the West. Now, I want to sort of deconstruct what some of those words actually mean, because in the American media, becoming more liberal or more like the West means to become more democratic. uh, Or to have a two-party or three-party system or a parliamentary system instead of uh, a single party you know rule the rule of the communist party it would mean to open up and be more like the united states in this kind of fanciful version of what the united states actually is like uh, i want to read a little bit to you from robert o'brien's piece he's the national security advisor under trump in foreign affairs and foreign affairs is the magazine of the foreign um, council on foreign relations which is a prestigious think tank formerly, you know, 50 years ago, like the dominant sort of non-governmental organization shaping American foreign policy, frequently uh, the secretaries of state were really chosen in the Council of Foreign Relations rather than, you know, somewhere else. So it was formerly a very, very powerful entity, much less powerful now, but not insignificant. So here's what O'Brien wrote, and he wrote this Not too long ago, October 21st, 2020, the headline of the article is How China Threatens American Democracy, 
Beijing's ideological agenda has gone global. Here's, here's what he writes. For decades, conventional wisdom in the United States held that it was only a matter of time before China would become liberal, first economically and then politically. We could not have been more wrong. A miscalculation that stands as the greatest failure of U.S. foreign policy since the 1930s. Wow, I guess greater than the Vietnam War. Uh, how did we make such a mistake? Primarily by ignoring the ideology of the Chinese Communist Party. Instead of listening to the CCP leaders and reading its key documents, we believe that we want what we wanted to believe that the Chinese ruling party is communist in name only. Today, it would be a similarly grave mistake to assume that this ideology matters only within China. In fact, the CCP's ideological agenda extends far beyond the country's borders and represents a threat to the idea of democracy itself, including in the United States. Now, Ken, this is BS. <laughs> this is bad sociology. Uh, I mean, what is the ideological agenda of the Chinese Communist Party? When you look at when you look at the the ideological, you know, sort of orientation of the Chinese Communist Party in the early 1960s, when you know the Chinese Party issued, say. Uh, the differences between Comrade Togliatti and us, which was a uh, sort of part of that period of Chinese Communist Party history where they were insisting that the communist movement return to the revolutionary road of Leninism. Uh, and some of the other polemics with the Soviet Party back in the 1960s, uh, or during the great proletarian cultural revolution, uh, in the sort of starting in 1966, Okay, you can make the case that China's foreign policy had an ideological uh, core to it, that it had uh, an appeal to international revolution, that it was trying to promote revolution globally, or at least support it, be sympathetic to it. But what's the ideological agenda that Robert O'Brien is talking about where he says, uh, it was a grave mistake to assume that this ideology matters only within China. In fact, the CCP's ideological agenda extends far beyond the country's borders. Again, Ken, to me, that sounds like BS. Well, I, you know, it's interesting, Brian. I, I think that uh, that there's there's two aspects to that uh, to that uh, little little bit you just read from O'Brien's article. Uh, and, and I have to say, on, on, uh, on one level, I, I actually agree with him when he says that, uh, uh, you know, American elites deluded themselves and what they should have done was listen to what the Chinese said and, and see what they were actually doing. Instead, they told themselves uh, that, you know, of course, uh, you know, if, if, they, if they use markets, if they have markets, if they're developing their economy, well, of course, then they'll just become exactly like us. And, and that was a fantasy from, from day one. So I think he's right about that. And, and that's part of what we were talking about earlier, that for most Americans, apparently, even the political elites, they really have very little idea of what's actually happening in China, what the Chinese say and think about themselves and what they're doing. 
So that's 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 funny. Uh, uh, reading that again, or hearing you read that again, it 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 uh, it, it kind of struck my uh, my funny bone a little bit that that I actually agree with that part of what he said. But I think where he goes off the rails is is exactly what you're asking about, which is uh, the idea that somehow China is uh, is trying to impose an ideological agenda around the world. Uh, and and it's it's funny because of course China also gets criticized for exactly the opposite. If we think about uh, the Belt and Road Initiative, this 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 massive uh, effort that China has uh, has been working with to help other countries to develop their their infrastructure, their economic uh, capabilities, to try to develop global relationships which will be mutually beneficial, uh, uh, not just uh, for for those individual countries in China, but for other countries amongst themselves that create linkages that facilitate. Uh, trade and economic development. Um, when China extends uh, loans and assistance and takes part in in construction development projects, uh, the American political elites criticize China then because they won't impose ideological standards. They won't impose political criteria on those loans, and they say, "Oh, they, you know, they 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 uh, they kowtow to dictators or something like that." Uh, so you know, it's kind of it's kind of which, which way is it? Are they are they promoting international socialism or, or are they you know refusing to impose political conditions on on their foreign aid? So it's that that's a that's a, another kind of uh, kind of uh, funny aspect of that. But I think that that anyone who looks at what China is is actually doing in a in a more objective way can see that while. Uh, uh, Xi Jinping and the Communist Party and and the the almost hundred million Chinese who are members of that party, while they're working very hard to develop what they call socialism with Chinese characteristics, and they're very upfront about that, and they talk about that as a system that serves the the needs and the interests of of the working people, uh, and they're using these market mechanisms to try to do that, and that's that's kind of a great adventure, and we'll see how that goes, but. Uh, there's certainly not an effort to to export that. There's not an effort to to impose that on on other countries. Uh, I think that you know there may be a hope that if China flourishes and as China prospers and as the quality of life for the Chinese people improves, that other people around the world might look at that and say, hey, maybe there's something there that would be of value or of use to us. But that's a far different thing than, than saying that China is somehow out trying to establish uh, the kind of, of domination in the world that uh, that the United States, of course, has has uh, assumed and and uh, continues to want to protect and and project uh, uh, going forward. You know, the United States, of course, has has massive resources devoted through things like the National Endowment for Democracy, so called, uh, to uh, to to bring off regime change to to you know manipulate the political affairs of countries in Asia in Africa and Latin America all around the world uh, and and I think often what we hear coming out of the mouths or, or being written by the, the on the computers of these these ruling class uh, uh, spokespeople is a projection 
of America's own behavior, a projection of America's uh, attitude towards the world, which is one of, of dominance and, and hegemony and exploitation, projecting that onto the Chinese. And I, I just don't think that that meshes with the reality of what we, we see China doing and, and certainly what the Chinese uh, say and, and think about themselves. So important for people to actually have some degree of objective faculty and to be able to look at China, understand China, uh, in order to be able to place American propaganda in some kind of context. One of the one of the things that we can see is that there is as the the growing hostility by the United States towards China reveals itself and and 2018, there was a new military doctrine unveiled by the Pentagon announcing to the world that China or Russia, major powers, were going to be the target for U.S. military doctrine. This was the doctrine that identifies major power conflict as principal, as primary, as the priority for U.S. planning, contingency planning, budgeting, prioritizing, deployment, uh, not any longer the war on terror, not any longer the war on Al-Qaeda. And so this military doctrine is adopted, is announced, and, and embraced by both capitalist parties, so both the Democrats and the Republicans, almost without debate, it's just like an assumption. Okay, now we're now China is in the crosshairs. It's official. We don't need to debate it. We don't need to discuss it. We don't need to discuss if there's a different path forward. This is the way it is. And again, not because there was some dramatic event in the world. It wasn't like some Pearl Harbor type moment or you know, some sort of pivotal shift in world politics. It was just basically announced. Uh, as you said, Ken, first, uh, Obama introduces uh, the pivot towards Asia. And seven years later, we find out the pivot to Asia means that we're getting ready for war with China. And, you know, for our audience, this is not the first pivot to Asia. There was the pivot in 1899. That was when right after John Hayes and the open door notes were proclaimed, he was the secretary of state then, that open door meaning that the United States goods should be able to compete with other European imperial goods or Japanese goods in for sale in China. The pivot to Asia then meant you know, occupying the Philippines after the occupation of Cuba and Puerto Rico, uh, all necessary to build a canal between that would link the the Atlantic to the Pacific, and so uh, goods and commodities, especially industrial products from that were built in the northeast cities of the United States, could be shipped uh, to Asia. So the Philippines is occupied; it becomes an American colony. A million Filipinos are killed. Uh, that was a pretty bad pivot to Asia for Filipinos, but it was, you know, the ultimate target was was China. And then there was the pivot towards Asia. Uh, of course, after Pearl Harbor, there was a pivot towards Asia with the U.S. deploying tens of thousands of troops, hundreds of thousands, in fact, to Korea in 1950. Another pivot to Asia with the invasion of Vietnam. These pivots to Asia are pretty bad for Asians. Uh, but, you know, when you think about the the last pivot to Asia, the the one after World War II, the invasion of Korea, the invasion of Vietnam, during what was then called the Cold War, you could kind of understand what U.S. imperialism and its allies 
were responding to in the first Cold War. Because after World War II, after the weakening of all of the imperial empires, with the exception of the United States, because of the, the destruction, the violence from World War II, the nationally oppressed, colonized, and semi-colonized people in Asia, in the Middle East, in Africa, in Latin America, who started this great anti-colonial uprising, of which the Chinese Revolution certainly you know, was part and parcel of, and, and in many ways, the vanguard for. So you could see at the end of World War II, there was a revolution in Korea, then a revolution in Vietnam, a revolution in China, a near revolution in Indonesia. There was mass communist movements in India. There was the anti-colonial movement that wasn't communist also in India. It looked like global communism and the revolution after World War II was spreading. So the Cold War against the Soviet Union and then against China and Vietnam and the others, it was to like contain the spread of revolution. I mean, American imperialism was definitely worried that you know, the empire was going to decline as a consequence of revolution. And so there was an ideological element to the Cold War because the revolutions were embraced by and frequently led by communists, including the revolutions for national independence. But here we are, Ken, in 2020, the framing of the, quote, new Cold War as an ideological battle seems to ring hollow to me, that this is just sort of snatching some of the rhetoric from the first Cold War, and that you know, the American imperialism isn't threatened right now by the advance of socialist revolutions everywhere. That's not what's going on. This is really a sort of made-up sort of rhetoric, and the real, the real issue is that the United States views the emergence of any power that's independent of you of the United States meaning not a quote US ally not a junior partner to US imperialism that that's really the problem for American imperialism that any country that rises and and, and provi provides the world with a counterweight to American hegemony that that's China's real sin anyway do you do you see it that way yeah i think that uh, that's exactly right i think that you know, after World War II, uh, the decline of, of the old European colonial empires, uh, the United States emerges as, uh, as, as, you know, as they like to, uh, the, the elites like to say, you know, the, the leader of the free world, uh, but certainly as the predominant capitalist power. Uh, locked uh, in a in a, a a kind of struggle with the Soviet Union, representing an alternative uh, to to capitalist uh, uh, economics, um, and and that you know that put the United States in the driver's seat on a planetary basis for a long long time, and with the collapse of the Soviet Union, uh, you know the United States then hoped and to some extent was able to extend that uh, that hegemony even even further. China's uh, uh, rise or, or re-emergence, really, uh, is is seen by by the American elites as a threat. I mean, they, I, I think they really do see it that way uh, because they cannot imagine that it's anything other than a zero-sum game. Their view is that if 
if China develops, if China becomes prosperous, if if uh, China you know develops its economy and and begins to resume the kind of role in in global affairs, uh, especially in East and South Asian affairs that it historically played, that that can only be bad. It can only be negative uh, for American interests and. You know they they want to to continue to dominate the world. They want to continue to have a, a sort of global division of labor in which uh, everybody else sort of contributes to uh, the 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 accumulation of wealth on the part of, of the, the the American ruling elites. Uh, that's not necessarily in the best interest of uh, of the American people, certainly. because China's rise should be seen as a as an opportunity. Something that could be mutually beneficial, something that could, you know, a, a process in which the American people uh, could share, you know, just as other people through the Belt and Road Initiative are finding ways to share in that. It doesn't have to be a, you know, your gain is my loss, but that's exactly how the American elites see it. And so that fear is what's driving all of this. That hope, again, going back to O'Brien's article that you uh, read from earlier. That hope or that that self delusion that China would become just like us, that they would liberalize. What that really meant was that China would simply become integrated into American dominance. That China would find a, a an appropriate place and and maybe even a significant place, but a subordinate place, a, a place as a good junior partner, maybe a nice obedient little brother, uh, uh, you know. And and that's that's that was the hope and that was the dream. That hasn't proved to be the reality. And so China now has to be demonized and turned into an enemy, a rival, a challenge, rather than seeing uh, a way for, for the people, both the Chinese people and the American people, to seek a common future that, that would be one of building mutual prosperity. Yes, those are, those are important words, Ken. I, we're, we're, we've run out of time. Time goes so fast. But I want to continue the discussion, if you're willing. And I, I'd like to focus in our next conversation about how uh, what how the Chinese economy works. What does it mean to have socialism with Chinese characteristics? There's obviously state ownership, public ownership, and private ownership. I also want to explore with you uh, China's economic, uh, international economic policy. It's, it's relationship not only with uh, with Europe and other parts of Asia, but in particular with Africa and Latin America. So there's a lot, lot more to talk about. And, you know, if you're willing, we'll, we'll cer- certainly keep this discussion going. But in, in our final sort of one minute, uh, if you can just summarize, uh, where do you think we're going to be a year from now, two years from now, five years from now, uh, again, we have a Democrat, not a Republican, Biden, not Trump. In terms of U.S.-China uh, confrontation, is it, from your point of view, uh, sort of a path that's been chosen by the American ruling class? Are we embarked on a road to confrontation? And if so, uh, what signs are there that there is opposition to the road? Because obviously politics isn't s- simply determined by the decisions or the policymakers of the ruling elites. There are tens of millions of people who, as we could see during Vietnam or the civil rights movement, 
what people think and what people do actually can make a difference too. But about one minute left. Sure. I think that, that uh, uh, going forward, uh, there's, there's a couple of dynamics that are, that are playing out. Uh, one is, is this concern on the part, especially of the political elites, about the erosion and, and, and decline of American global power, American global hegemony. And I think that's going to continue to be a source of great anxiety, and I think that that's a source of great danger. But on the other side, you know, the bourgeois state is meant to serve the interests of the capitalist class. And the, the, the other reality is that the economies of the United States and China are deeply interconnected. China's role in the global economy is only getting greater and greater. And if the United States wants to continue to have a significant role for itself, it has to stay deeply engaged in that global economy and find ways uh, to, to sort of get along with these changing realities. And we've seen some of that in, in, in uh, the American Chamber of Commerce and in, in, uh, some of the manufacturing associations that have been reluctant to endorse some of the more confrontational policies and that have been uh, concerned about maintaining you know, conditions of stability in, in global affairs. So I think that, that there's two trends, even within the ruling class, uh, one, uh, as I say, a fear of the erosion of political dominance, but the other is a is a desire to to continue uh, to benefit from the uh, the growth of the global economy overall. Uh, and I think that uh, you know, ironically enough, we may hope that that attitude prevails because at least that'll keep us from uh, getting into a shooting war. All right, we're going to leave it right there for now. That was Ken Hammond. Ken Hammond is a professor of East Asian and global history at New Mexico State University. He's also an activist and organizer with the organization Pivot to Peace. Ken, before we actually leave, um, if people want to read some of your writings, where where can they go? How can they find them? Well, uh, in, you know, here we are in the modern electronic age. If if people want to want to have a sense of, uh, of of some of the things I work on. Um, uh, actually, the best thing to do, I have a series of, uh, of lectures on Chinese history that comes right up to the beginning of the 21st century uh, that's that's uh, put out by, uh, I think it's called The Great Courses out of Chantilly, Virginia. Uh, it's called uh, From Yao, Y-A-O, From Yao to Mao, 5,000 Years of Chinese History. Uh, if, if people, uh, that's, that's sort of the best place if you want to get at the, the kind of things that I've been working on. All right. And again, that's Ken Hammond. And if you're looking for him uh, and his works, go, it's H-A-M-M-O-N-D, Ken Hammond, professor of East Asian and global history at New Mexico State University and activist with the organization Pivot to Peace. We're going to keep this discussion going on U.S.-China relations. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker.